Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where you'll receive a boost of inspiration, practical advice, and tools to maximize your success and personal happiness. And that's not all. You'll also get plenty of guidance on how you can use your gifts, talents, and compassion to contribute towards making the world a better place. Be sure to sign up for our free weekly newsletter for a preview of what's in store and to also receive a free ebook. To sign up, simply visit www.thedreamcatch.com. Now it's my pleasure to introduce you to the host of the Dreamcatcher podcast, Celine Chinoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dreamcatcher podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. Creating the type of world we want to live in takes guts, grace, and everything we've got. And to heal the world and be a source for good, we've also got to heal ourselves. In the words of my guest, Alma Zaragoza Petty, we've got to unleash our Shingana, our inner badass. Today, she'll show us how to embrace and express our inner Shingana. Alma Zaragoza Petty. PhD is a social justice advocate and scholar who teaches equity to create change. Born in Los Angeles, but raised in Acapulco, Mexico, her butcher for childhood, she is the daughter of immigrant parents. Alma has served as an academic advisor, a professor, and in research and evaluation for a nonprofit organization. She is a co-founder of Prickly Pear Collective, a trauma-informed faith-based community organization, and co-host of the Red Couch podcast. In this interview, Alma describes the Shingana spirit she began to claim within herself and leads us towards the courage required to speak up and speak out against oppressive systems. This involves owning our stories, healing past wounds, and believing we are worthy of success and praise. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, Rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hello, Alma. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here and to get to talk about, you know, the book that I just wrote and all of the things I've been processing since. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm glad that you're here with us. Uh, I'm looking forward to learning more about your story and, uh, that you've penned so beautifully in your book that you just mentioned, Shingana, Owning Your Inner Badass for Healing and Justice. Um, I must say that it was wonderful to read. And I think that you touch on some very important and timely issues, especially when it comes to race and gender. So we definitely have a lot to talk about today. Yeah, thank you so much. That It really warms my heart to hear that, you know, when folks are reading it, it's doing something. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. The scariest thing is when you'd write a book, you're like, um, so is anyone going to read this? Uh, anyone's going to have any opinions on this? You know, so. No, it's a very, know. it's a very moving story that a lot of people need to hear. Um, and uh, I think you made the right decision to write about it. Thank you. All right. So Alma, let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, you're a first generation Mexican American who moved to LA from Mexico when you were a young girl. So tell us what your early experiences, uh, what it was like, and how did it shape you and the work that you do today? Yeah, 
I think that, you know, being born in Los Angeles, being a U.S. citizen and having the freedom to be able to go to Mexico and then be raised there by my grandparents um, really gave me a perspective that, you know, I think a lot of people call now uh, third third culture kid, you know, where you're kind of not really sure where home is because you feel like you're very much a part of this culture, but you grew up in another country and then you kind of, and from my, in my case, I came, I went back and forth a lot. It was a lot of uh, visiting after even I came back after my childhood. And um, in a lot of ways, uh, being in those two contexts really shaped the way that I saw the world kind of writ large, you know, larger. And you know, one of the things that I also talk about in my book is that I actually was bused to a predominantly African-American school and community when I was a, um, when I did come back to the U.S. And this was very, very different and shocking and also a very cultural, culturally disorienting experience because like in many communities, you know, Mexican-Americans, there's a lot of colorism and anti-Black sentiments. Um, and so, hearing these things at home and in like the news and outlets that we listen to, but then going to a school where I'm predominantly around a different culture was a sort of, you know, something that really shaped the way that I, I again, saw different cultures and really uh, understood that, you know, some of the commonalities and some of the things that brought us together as well. And so over the years, I really, I really, I've realized now that's really what has really pushed me to go into working in like diversity and equity kind of inclusion spaces and trying to bridge some access and um, persistence for first generation low-income students, which is where, you know, I work at, at a nonprofit that focuses on that. And so, yeah, I, I, I would say that it directly shaped me. You know, there's so many things that happened in my earlier experiences that I can see now had a significant impact in how I just view the world and how I choose to do some of the work that I do. Interesting. I, I can understand because I myself, I'm a third culture kid. And a question I'd like to ask all TCKs is, what do you identify yourself as? How do you see your identity? Like which countries yeah. do you feel more, uh, which races, which countries do you feel more affiliated with? Yeah, I, I definitely, like you mentioned earlier, um, call myself a Mexican-American, which is very different because often in within this community, there's this term Chicana, Chicano, uh, which is really about the struggle that Mexican-Americans had in the U.S. around having access to schools and equitable treatment and that sort of thing. And while I, I love that they did that and that, that that was a part of the history here, specifically in L.A. and also in the United States, I don't know that I, I I can consider myself a Chicana, you know, and or that I do consider myself a Chicana because so much of my upbringing was around these, uh, you know, Mexican communities, indigenous communities in Mexico. And then also while I was here, I was very much around Black folks, like I mentioned earlier. And so I'm kind of, I, I call myself Mexican-American because those are the places that I, you know, legally I was born in and I lived in. Um, but there's a lot of differences with a lot of Chicanos in my community and where I live, where I don't really um, have that same experience that they they that they have. 
Right. I mean, it's just yeah. those small nuances, right? That people won't understand until they actually get to know you. And I, right. I understand how frustrating <laughs> that can be because, you know, on the surface, uh, I, you know, I'm Indian, but there, there mm. are so many cultural layers to me uh, that yeah. people can only understand once uh, they get to know my values and the way I live my life. So I, right. I totally understand. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. I, I love, I love, um, you know, this third world kind of culture idea. I think that there's a lot to be learned as well from people that are mixed heritages or that really understand, you know, the different cultural backgrounds they come from, because in a sense it, it, you know, we, from very early on, we had to be um, people that connected each other, you know, like bridge builders. So. Yeah. And it's because you have that sensitivity and that perspective because of, everything that you've been through. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's definitely other, you know, some of the other things that I talk about in my book are are some of the more traumatic issues and problems that arise when you are from a very low income background, where there's resources are very limited. You don't have a lot of access to um, different resources. And um, yeah, that also very much shaped who, you know, the empathy that I'm able to have for people that, get left behind, right? Whether that's um, because of policies or because of community values. And I'm always at the margins and trying to sort of call attention to those that are at the at those margins because of how of my own experience, you know, dealing with intergenerational trauma um, in various forms, um, you know, a lot of violence, a lot of um, a lot of um, alcoholism and you know substance abuse that kind of thing and really understanding that how hard it is for folks at those marginal spaces to really change and to really start to feel valued or even have that self-worth that's needed to change so yes that definitely also very much shapes sort of more of the internal world right of like how I see myself and how I connect with others and how I want to bridge a little some hope to different kinds of marginalized peoples. I love it. And we need more people like you, Alma, because God knows in our influencer, self-centered culture, (laughs) which is completely taking over, um, we need a few soldiers on the field who are willing to fight the good fight, you know, and really uh, be out there with the, with the people who need, who need that guidance, who need that uh, support. So, so that's beautiful. All right, so let's talk about the title of your book. Um, let's start with Shingana. So what does Shingana mean and why is it important for us to be aware of our inner Shingana? Yeah, so Chingona basically means badass woman. It means it's a Spanish word for the badassery that happens when a Latina, you know, really starts to own all the pain, all of the joy, all of the things that made her who she is, and that now she can, um, you know, take onto the world. And so historically, chingona has been a derogatory term. It's been a term that has been used, um, you know, colonial times to describe, you know, fatherless children. It's kind of akin to the word bastard, you know, and how that's, that was used kind of archaically as like someone who didn't have a father, which we know because of patriarchy, 
became a very big deal, right? And like in terms of like connecting your lineage back. And so Chingona is really about almost this imagined visionary heritage that we have as Latinas, whether you're able to trace back your roots or not because of colonialism, we know that we are survivors. We know that we are our indigenous and Afrodescendiente survivor, you know, survivance is alive and well because we're here. Otherwise, we would have been killed off when we were, you know, invaded or whenever when the world tried to conquer brown women, right? And so um yeah, it's also like a manifesto and a call for women, brown women to really um have this visionary and um encompassing sort of uh, identity that really captures all of who you are when you felt limited by what has been given to you as your identity. Interesting. So if someone comes up to me and calls me a Shingana, should I be offended or has that word, is that evolved into something positive now? It's definitely something positive now. You should be totally okay. flattered. They're calling okay. you a badass woman, getting your ish done. And there's nothing, uh, there's a, not a higher level that, uh, especially if it's coming from a Latina, that they can call you when it comes to like just being badass. So um, it's definitely now shifted into being a term that was, you know, once used against many you know, populations and Latinas specifically and Mexicanas in general, um, and has become this term that has totally been re-envisioned, right? And reclaimed by the community, the Latina community. But that's not to say, you know, I, I recently actually heard that um, Apple was censoring another interview I was on because of the word chingona. So there's still a lot of, you know, demystification that has to happen around this term um, because it means different things to different people. And so, for instance, there's also, I would say, like a um, intersectional class thing about Chingona in which, you know, I would say people who are much more on the owning class or the class of like professional sort of, uh, you know, paths, class paths, they might see this as like very low class and like very... Um, uh, you know, kind of a cheap kind of thing to say, or, you know, like a vulgar way to say something, you know, but, you know, those people would also think that badass is such a, like, you know, not a good word to say, <laughs> you know, what we yes, mean. Yeah, so, yeah. so, you know, whatever, take it how you will. This is yeah. how, as a brown woman from a low-income background, I wanted to identify as, and I want it to, you know, really bring to the mainstream that this is a word that we've been using for a very long time in a positive way. And does it have masculine undertones? So um, some of the undertones with Chingona is that actually for many generations, uh, and this is something that I also talk about in the book, my cousins and like men in my family were called Chingones and it was, or Chingon, you know, singular, singular. And it was always a positive thing. It was always like, you're badass, you're, you know, you're a dude that gets their stuff together that are, you know, is doing some, some amazing wild moves in the world. Right. But you know, I don't, I think that in, because of just the sort of the trajectory of the word, it didn't really become a positive thing for women to be chingonas. It was more of a way to silence us because who wants to be a, a loud, rowdy girl, right? Growing up, like where you were called a chingona, it was like as a diss, not as an invitation to like lean into your leadership skills. It was more of a like, calm down, 
you're acting crazy, you know, like basically like be quiet and sort of, you know, and I talk about this and also in the book and, and how there's in whatever culture you're in, there there's a specific term or way that we like to silence girls and women who are really, um, you know, outspoken, skills, outspoken yeah. or have a, have thoughts. And yeah, <laughs> that was definitely one of the words that was used by my own parents sometimes against me yeah. as a way to silence me or, you know, my family as a way to silence me. And it was not the case when it was used with my cousin, Mel cousins, when the word chingon was used. Yeah. I think that's common in patriarchal cultures, especially the more toxic ones, you know? Um, I know it's certainly, it was the case in in the Indian culture, the East Asian culture as well. So Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I think it it manifests in all, all these societies, unfortunately. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But what I love, what I love is that you were able to turn this word into an aspirational archetype. And you really made that the center of your book. And you really had, you know, laid out some really great life principles, starting with um, how owning your inner Shingana really requires us to acknowledge the many wounds of our past and our present and accept what it is here to teach us. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you please expand on that, Alma? Yeah. So I dedicate a chapter in my book called Vivir con Cicatrices, which means living with scars and seeing scars as a proof of healing. So often, you know, when we think of scars, we think of the wound, right? Like what created the scar and the the wound itself and how painful that was. But I think it's also really beautiful in a you know metaphysical way that our bodies heal by forming these scars. And likewise, I like to think that spiritually speaking, emotionally speaking, this is also what happens to those very deep-seated wounds from our, you know, whether it be from our past or our childhoods or even current ones when we go through trauma is that they really become not just a symbol of the pain and the chaos of what may have happened in that moment, but also an evidence that we can heal from that. We can move from there. We can use that as a reminder um, of the growth we've had, of how much we've Mm -hmm. come, you know, from that space. When I say you need to acknowledge these many wounds of our past, I think many of us also tend to want to run away from who we are, right? Because it's so mm-hmm. painful to have to sit with some of those experiences that may have hurt us growing up or as adults. And so what if we were to think of those instead, those experiences? Yes, that's painful and we need to go through the grieving process, but also as there to teach us something, right? So as a way that can help us learn more about ourselves, learn more about the world, and accept, you know, and and know that sometimes things don't happen as we want them to happen. And that's often the case in the in, in life, right? We don't control everything. Of course. Yeah. And so so it's a it's an invitation for people who have gone through tremendous hurt to really see your wounds not just as pain, but as the way that our body naturally heals, that will happen also with your spirit and your emotion, emotional space. And you will also heal from that if you allow the process to happen. And what helped you with healing your wounds? So there's a lot of things that have helped me. Um, Therapy was one of them. I talk about, you know, I had to be on antidepressants for a while. Uh, When I first realized 
and had sort of a, a a mental breakdown. And, you know, something that I really learned through this process of even writing this book is the different ways that people see breakdowns and how we could really also re-envision breakdowns as breakthroughs. And so it was, you know, I, I've had these breakthroughs in my life where all of a sudden my body was just not cooperating with my mind. You know, I was having random panic attacks. I was having random sleep paralysis. And, you know, I talk a little bit about this, you know, what that is. And basically it was my body realizing a lot of the trauma that I had gone through and what I had ignored for so long and calling me, inviting me into finally reconciling those parts of me. And I really fought it, you know, like for many years, I fought it with my own substance abuse and wanting to kind of escape and not deal with it. And ultimately, I had to just also face that we can't really, um, that just undermines us, right? So it really doesn't help us to get to a place of deep healing if we're constantly trying to escape ourselves. We actually have exactly. to go in, not out, and like, you know, try to escape. And so, but I was, but that was a very scary process for me to go in, to have this sort of a settled feeling of like calm and, and, um, contentment because as soon as I did, these feelings would would uh, bubble up and I didn't know what to do with them for a very long time. And so it took years of therapy. Um, you know, I also learned a lot about my own chemical makeup in terms of intergenerational trauma and how that affects, you know, the, your, even your own um, DNA and the makeup of your own genes and and how someone who has gone through a lot of that you know, many generations later, and it was never processed or never dealt with many generation later, generations later will show up as anxiety and depression or all these factors that I never felt like, you know, were, were part of who I was. And then they do show up as part of who you are. And so then you for in my case, I had to really deal with that through, like I said, you know, for me, it was a it was a very spiritual process. It was also you know, um, taking meds and then also realizing some of the diet dietary restrictions that I had to have in order to feel my best and, and those sort of things. If I wanted to deal with it in a more natural way or not using medication all the time. And this is not to say that, you know, there's folks that have to live on medication or may have needed, may need it for a very long time. Um, but we often don't talk about, you know, also getting to a place of healing, right? So once we heal, or once we've done the things on our with our on ourselves and with others to create a support system, how do we then trust ourselves? Like, how do we dig deep into self trust, to be able to know that you're going to be okay, and that this next season will be very different than what we've experienced? Because it's very scary. You know, I, I, I also support a lot of people going through these kinds of changes in their lives. And, and I, I like to remind them that, you know, the darkness and the scariness that'll happen won't stay the same forever. And, you know, I and that takes courage, that takes courage does. and it takes, it takes self-awareness. You know, you had that self-awareness to know that you actually had to address these wounds from your past and that you needed help. Um, yes. And unfortunately that's not the case for a lot of people. And that's when they start going downhill. Right. Yeah, right? it takes a lot, a lot of courage. It's, it's yeah. not an easy process. It's very much, you know, you want to avoid it. I did for a few years. And ultimately, I had to just realize that I was also avoiding it. And yeah, it takes a lot of awareness. Yeah. And 
in another one of your chapters, you say that it's important to reframe your story so that it has a more empowering meaning. Uh, and you, you actually say that your pain is part of your story, but it does not define who you are. Uh, do you have any advice for those who want to dig deeper into their stories and really expect more from them? Yeah. So one of the things that I've learned in my, through my own studies and, you know, in some of the work that I do is that often who gets to tell the story and how they get to tell the story is, is very, very powerful. It's, it's, it's history making, it's narrative making. And, in, and as we know, right, as brown women in our histories, you know, across the world, brown women haven't had a chance to define ourselves for who we are, right? It's always been sort of the, the white gaze or the sociological gaze of, the, you know, these are how these communities live and this is what they're about. And I have a whole chapter dedicated to when I first encountered this idea of my the city that I was born or the city that I um, lived in in my teenage years becoming being known as the most miserable city in California and sort of what that meant for me, because I never thought of it that way, you know? And, and then once I dug deeper, I was like, okay, this is, this is because they're looking at these markers, these economic markers, but not at the root of how those economic markers even came to be. Basically the way that others have defined us is not the way that we should see ourselves or see our communities. We should dig deep into the strengths in our communities and the values in our communities that have allowed us to survive for this long, despite colonialism, despite genocide in some cases. And, and actually, if we start to align ourselves to that history, you realize like, wow, like it's actually pretty badass that like somehow I'm here, like I'm kind of a miracle in the world, you know? And so it's very hard when you're in those sort of darker times, right, of like healing to really see that. And so I think what really helped me in those times and what I would, um, you know, offer as advice is that in our communities and different communities, um, we haven't always had therapy. We haven't always had to pay someone to listen to us. There are natural people in our communities, our support system that can also offer that. And getting really good at boundary making is the way that I felt was really helpful. So for instance, when I wanted to share something with someone, you know, we have those people that will like spiral with us and say like, yeah, that was horrible. I can't believe they did that to you. Blah, blah, blah. Or like, yeah, you know, and just kind victim of victim mentality. Yeah. Victim mentality and kind of keep us in that place as opposed to like, wow, that sounds like that was really hard for you to experience, you know, and that it was difficult to live through and not have any judgment themselves on the situation or, you know, how you're handling it, but validating where you are. And I think that unfortunately we, you know, this type of work isn't, isn't taught at schools, isn't taught anywhere really. Like this is all our own personal growth that needs to happen and that we need to seek out. And so becoming really good yourself at making boundaries of what you can and can't handle and who you will or will not allow to speak into your life was probably one of those things that even if I didn't have therapy would, you know, before I had therapy, that's what I started to do first. I started to have boundaries around those folks that um, just wanted to tell me how to live my life <laughs> or, you know, or wanted to keep me in a place of uh, where I would do, wasn't feeling empowered. And so 
And how did you know that? How did you realize that? Because I'm I'm guessing that you probably didn't have anyone who who actually talked you through all this and the importance of um, taking care of your mental health mm-hmm. and guarding yeah. your self-worth and your identity. How did it come to you? Yeah, I think part of it might be my personality, but part of it was also mentors. I talk a lot about these unlikely mentors that I have in my book, one of them being um, the main the main girl in in a set of a gang that I joined and that later she basically kicked me out of because she was like, you're, you should go focus on your studies because I was a nerd. And so like people that like kind of saw beyond my immediate sort of reactions to things and ways that I was maybe just acting out right in the world, some of the pain that maybe I was holding. Um, I think that really helped. So like re-envisioning some of those people that have asked me really hard questions, even when they weren't really that hard. But at that time, I wasn't thinking about those things. So I have, I also talk about a counselor who, you know, really wanted to know why I had joined a gang. And I was just like, I have no real answer for you. (laughs) Like, I don't know. At that time, I had no idea. I was just like, this is what you do, right? You know? And so, um, so I would say that what really helped me were those mentors or those life guides that maybe didn't call themselves that or didn't even see me as that, but that took on that role in my life by asking me those hard questions when I wasn't ready to go there yet. And then also just being a person that is super curious and has always wanted to know the why of things. I'm not content with just, you know, knowing how things are done. I have always dug deeper and been like, why, why, why is this always how it's been done? You know? which drove my parents crazy growing up because, you know, I was always kind of questioning their, their own parenting, but, but really it was because I didn't understand, you know, these sort of patterns that I kept seeing over and over. And I really didn't, I wanted to get to the root of it because I I could see it even as a young child as like, this isn't, this doesn't feel good. You know, like there was something off about this. And so a lot of it was, I think also just being, questioning authority, being just always curious and um, naturally kind of leaning that way, you know, and, but I think everyone can develop that, right? Like that natural curiosity about our environment. That's true. But for some people, it comes more naturally. Um, And, you know, I mean, clearly based on what you're telling me, you seem like you're an old soul and you had that, um, that insight early on in your life. And I yeah, that, and I was called that a lot when I was young too. So it's yeah, interesting that you say yeah. that. I'm, yeah, I, I'm hearing all the yeah. symptoms. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay, great. Now let's talk about imposter syndrome. You say that Shinganas tend to face this, and honestly, I think all women at some yes. point tend to face imposter syndrome. You say they feel incompetent, fake, or less than, despite all their hard work and accomplishments. So. Based on your experience, Alma, why do women face this and what can they do to work through it? Yeah, I think a lot of it honestly comes down to our communal history of just patriarchy, right? Like there's so much about how women have had to like really fight to be in the workspace, Mm -hmm. to be able to have equal pay, which we still don't have. Um, across different, you know, populations, some having more than others, you know, but it's still a thing, right? It's still something that's very much a reality. And so when we have this knowledge or when we, when even, even if we don't have that knowledge, if this is something new to you that you didn't even know existed, 
the world is still operating under that though, right? So when, you know, when you see who's a CEO, when you see who's an AD from different organizations, these longstanding institutions, it's wealthy white men. And so because of this reality and and, and seeing this, it really shapes, um, I think, like the way that we think about our contributions and the way that we think about our value in society, whether it's, I think, you know, consciously or not, it shapes us. It shapes the messages that we get. Um, I think that we, as a society, we're doing a lot better, you know, than from what I remember when I was growing up <laughs> and some of the images that I saw um, in terms of addressing some of those things and not being so outright like um, sexist, you know, in some in, in different uh, situations or different work environments. And I think over the years, I think um, because of this view and because of the way that brown women in particular were also seen as objects for, and, you know, seen as objects for much longer in our histories, you know, in, in the ways that we traded women as like other commodities, for instance, or the fact that like there's been in almost every society, um, you know, this way of thinking of women as sexual objects specifically. Yeah. Um, I think that all of this is ingrained in our like psychic being, you know, like I mentioned this a lot in my book, like we were really good at analyzing and using sort of our, you know, more analytical parts of our brain to understand a lot of this, but I don't think we give enough time to, you know, what we're doing to ourselves at a psychic level, at a psychological level. Um, and now we're seeing, you know, obviously that there's like a lot of research showing that women in particular suffer more from anxiety and depression. Uh, one in every four, I think, is like the current um, number. And a lot of that has to do with the ways that we are continuing to uh, objectify women through like social media and what they, you know, what those platforms choose and not and choose not to um, censor and, and you know, really kind of keep an eye on. And so a lot of that keeps being replicated through our culture, I would say. And some of it also could be that you might just be the first professional in your family. You might be the first generation professional in your family. This was the case for me. I, you know, a lot of the women that I grew up with and that um, cared for me in my young, in my childhood were service workers. You know, they worked in the industry, in the service industry and, or didn't, or relied on, um, you know, they were persistently uh, poor and relied on systemic support, you know. And so I was the first person out of my family to go on and have a professional career. And so when I'm the first in my family and I'm comparing some of the women that brought me up and then the women that I'm seeing and who's in the leadership positions, all of a sudden I'm just like, whoa, am I even supposed to be here? Like, you know, it, it really can cause you to feel like you don't belong. And so I think all of those kinds of things affect one, you know, women, brown women, to feel this imposter syndrome yeah. in the workplace. And it's interesting that you say that. I interviewed Elizabeth Lesser. She's the founder of Omega Institute in New York. And she wrote a book called Cassandra Speaks, and where she talks, she talks about imposter syndrome and how women have uh, kind of internalized this, mm -hmm. this, this message and this image that, you know, we are lesser than and that we, we don't belong in those higher places and uh, the upper echelons of uh, social hierarchy and professional hierarchy. So there's more awareness about this now, you know, with authors like you as well, bringing it in the spotlight. 
Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a great book as well. I think that this is something that, you know, for women, we have to continue to really bring awareness to, right? Because it really impacts our careers and some of the dreams that we may have. And um, over time, one of the things that I realized is that no matter whether you come from a low-income background or not a low-income background, you know, for many years, I was called at risk because of just educational literature and sociological, you know, social work literature, looking at the factors of my childhood and seeing like, okay, these things put together equals someone who's very at risk for incarceration, for, um, you know, just dropping out of high school, for early pregnancy, right? All of those things that sociologists and uh, social scientists like to look at and kind of predict. And while that's true, and while that there may be patterns, there's also your own lived reality and and you and ultimately your own agency to change things and to not fall into those statistics, right? And so I think that that's something that I carry with me now whenever I start to feel that imposter syndrome or, you know, feeling like less than and realizing like, oh, yeah, you know, that was just my background. And just like that was my background, that is the background of the folks here in leadership. They have their own background and it doesn't make them in any way a different, you know, like to show up in a different way right now that I'm showing up, which is as best as I can. Right. And so they're also doing the best that they can. And so I recently um, gave a talk to uh, medical residents, so students and residency who are becoming doctors and and we talked about sort of these different class tiers, you know, and and, and what it means to, if you come from a low-income background to then move into this upper middle-class profession and, you know, remembering sort of your background because it helps you to bridge some of the services that you want to provide and why you even went into medicine. But then also uh, realizing that you're nowhere near the top 1% of the owning and ruling class, you know, in a lot of these places because... Like, if we know anything about also research and sociology is that sociological work is that the all the wealth is concentrated to a very few amount of people or a very few amount of institutions. And so most of us are out here just struggling, just trying to survive in this capitalistic world, including people that may have grown up a little more in the upper class or, you know, more wealthy backgrounds. More privileged. Also, more privileged. Yeah, they still have issues. They still mm-hmm. never were taught how to be aware of themselves, just yeah. like me. You know, and they had to do that growth on their own. So that's to me empowering for people um, to recognize about maybe if you come from more of those lower income backgrounds or just backgrounds where you're the first in your family to go into certain spaces is to realize that just like how you're learning and growing, those people are too. There no, there there isn't a superiority stick, and they're not measuring any higher. They're also just figuring it out, right. And does it help to have role models? Because earlier this year, during the Johnny Depp uh, Amber Heard trial, um, there was this lawyer named Camille Valquez, and she was she, she was a powerhouse, right? Like, and a lot of Latina girls and women were so happy to see her um, really, you know, represent them and just be like on top of her game. They did interviews with these girls and Latina girls and women who said that they're so proud of her. So does it help to have role models? Absolutely. I think role models and representation matters, right? We know that the more, I mean, there's this um, this issue about The Little Mermaid, the new movie, casting a white mermaid, I mean, a black mermaid and mm-hmm. kind of yep. being up in an uproar about it. But then you see all these videos of these young 
uh, black and brown girls being like, oh my gosh, she's black. Like, this is amazing. It's so empowering to see people in, um, you know, in roles that you, for, well, in their case, it's a magical role, right? Like you're like this magical princess of the sea and it's a beautiful kind of way to be represented. But then for us as adults, like we also need that that uh, inspiration, right? We need to see role models being at their A game, being at their best. Not that they need to be perfect. I, I, I feel like the role models that I've always aspired to are the ones that felt a little a lot more human and a lot more like me, but we're doing amazing stuff, you know, because I also feel that there are role models out there that can be, it can be very toxic to want to be like them because they have, you know, shut out a big part of their lives or, you know, they're, uh, don't care about certain kinds of issues. And I, I, I don't, I don't really value that type of leadership. I value folks that are in positions of power that then also, use that as a way to invite everyone in and say like, look, I'm not a perfect person, but here I am. I'm trying my best and I'm just really good at this thing. And I'm going to like learn all of the, put in my time here so that I could be the best at that thing, you know? Yeah. So I, I think it's absolutely like. So leadership with humility. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so needed. I think that if we want a different kind of world, we have to start doing things a little bit differently. And leadership models that get taught in business schools and that get taught in different spaces are kind of replicating the same thing. You know, it's kind of what's worked. So this is what we keep doing. And then it's, and so to me, that's why I also get encouraged when we do have, um, I think right now the population of Latina professors um, in across universities is like 4%. It's very, very low. Like brown women in general is a, is a very, very low number of professors that are teaching these concepts, right? And so I think that the more I see people going into education, and this is why I've, you know, I, I'm so in- encouraged by the educational field as being a place of transformation is because as we see more and more people from different places arrive at those at the ivory tower and teach things differently then we'll start to see things you know be done practically in a very different way and so i just want to encourage people who are you know even thinking about um their own education or even just you know doing going into different fields that yeah, you could actually change things. If you could start to reframe things in a different way and and not have power be this thing that gets hoarded and that is, you know, a leadership model where it's just like a celebrity type kind of no, you know, one person and it could be shared. There's like co-founders of things, you know, there's people who um, you know, use more of a consent building um rules and policies in their organizations as opposed to like from the top down. And so there's there's a lot there is what I'm saying to be learned and to do differently. And that's also a very, very amazing or encouraging space to think about because things can change. And we have to have this view of, of things changing, even in the world, not just in ourselves, but yeah. also things that in the world can change. Yes. And you you actually mentioned that the towards the end of a with your book, you actually end on a very powerful note stating that by awakening to the fractures within ourselves and each other, we can heal and create a more just world. Change begins with ourselves. Love that. So Alma, what initial steps can we begin to take in creating a more just world? 
Yeah, I think, you know, self-awareness, we talked about that, right? I think that we can't create a different kind of world, a world where we want to see justice and peace and sort of love be the value if we don't start that with ourselves and if we don't know how to do that even to ourselves, you know, and I'm talking about here, like some of the negative self-talk that might happen for some folks or things that you're doing that's really violent against yourself and you don't even realize it. And so when you, um, you know, when, when you are that way to yourself, then it's very hard to be different with others. You know, sometimes we're the harshest with ourselves, which, and that's true. You know, we, we tend to be a little bit more, yeah, um, we are our own worst yeah. critic. <laughs> yeah, we are. Yes, we, we are. are. Especially so if you're a perfectionist or someone who's like a high achiever. <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. you know we what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> we hold ourselves to a very high standard. We do. Yes, we, we do. do. And, and, you know, and we tend to be a little bit uh, less that way with people around us. But yeah. some of that value and that mentality still seeps out of us, you know, because that's who we are. And so I think being aware of how we're actually c- creating harmful kinds of systems still. Um, for me, a lot of that had to do with changing also my own parenting. You know, um, we women's roles are diverse and varied and, you know, everyone's roles are diverse and varied. And so you may have, you may be a CEO and have, you know, the ability to influence a lot of people, or you might be a mom and have the influence to, you know, have the influence to change like two human beings it's still a lot of power if you think about it that way, you know, like you are literally creating the next generation of humans, even as a mom or whether you're a leader. And so it's just the numbers that are different, you know, and, but a lot of that is the same work. It's about being aware of who you are, uh, making sure that you're replicating into the world things intentionally and not just because that's what you learned. That's what you were taught because who taught you and why did they ta- t- teach you that way? You know, if, if you can't answer that, you need to do some digging and find things that correlate more strongly with your own values if you want to see things differently in organizations. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's some I great advice. On on, but I'll stop there. I mean, I mean you, you can if you want to. Like, we can listen to you all day because you're giving us some pearls of wisdom. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Alma, it's, it's been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and using your experience to give a voice to the unheard and unseen. Uh, I mean, really need more people like you in the world. Thank you so much, Celine. And it was great to be here. Um, so excited for, you know, this conversation and how it might impact folks. I want to let everyone know that um, if you're interested in purchasing a copy of uh, Alma's new book, Shingana, Owning Your Inner Badass for Healing and Justice, it will be available on November 1st um, at all major bookstores. Mm -hmm. Anything else you'd like to add to that? Um, The only other thing is um, if you are in LA or you're in Southern California, I am having a book launch that is a free event for the community in Lincoln Heights, November 5th from 12 to 5. And I have a, you can find me on Eventbrite. I can also share that with you if you like. So you can post that. But yeah, I would love to see you. I'm going to be there. I'm going to sign books. I'm going to talk about the writing process and more of the creative aspect of the book writing process. Um, And yeah, I hope to see people there and be able to dance. And it's going to be a big pachanga, which is Spanish for just a big party. 
Big party. Wow. That sounds exciting. <laughs> I would have joined if I was there, but uh, yeah, I'm sure it's going to be fun. Well, Alma, thank you so much. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.